the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Streaming now on the KFAX app and the Odyssey app. Portions of our programming may be pre-recorded. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you on board for this uh, 29th day of September. My goodness, when uh, you're having fun, how time flies. I'll also like to give a shout-out to our uh, studio audience. Hey, studio audience. Yeah, they're they're in a sealed compartment. Uh, this, is to, this is to protect me from them. <laughs> At any rate, we've got a we got a bit of an audience there in the control room today. It's that's good. I am used to working with a net, but we can do that without one today. And got a good show for you today. We are going to be talking a little bit later on in the first hour with Brian Johnston. Um, I recognize that some people think the decision in Texas related to clamping down on um, abortion access is extreme. But the response by some in Washington, D.C., in Congress, um, makes it pale in comparison. We'll find out why. Brian Johnston joins us later on tonight with the National Right to Life Committee. Lots to talk about, so we're just going to dispense with the formalities and get down to cases this evening. Many had speculated that there would be a significant change in leadership and therefore potentially the direction of the great state of California on September the 14th. And if you held that opinion, you would now be decidedly in the wrong category. It seems as if Californians, at least for the moment, are content with business as usual. But the broader picture of not just the future of the Republican Party in California, but um, what of the next year, um, 18 months-ish, of Gavin Newsom. It doesn't appear on the surface that the spanking that he received, in a sense, from the recall election, by first getting it even qualified to be on the bill, seemed to have much of an impact. Uh, Post-French laundry, I don't see much of a display of humility, nor does he necessarily appear to be in any sense of uh, concern over the wrath of California Voters, unlike Gray Davis of two decades ago. Let's get some insights now. We're joined by a, a frequent guest of the program. You'll recognize her many years as the host of Reimagine America. She's the founder and publisher of Reimagine America. Always delightful to have with us on the program, Joyce Cordy. And Joyce, as always, great to have you with us. It's my pleasure. Lots to talk about. So let's just kind of get down to first, uh, Joyce, your, your post-recall election observations. Uh, do you concur with kind of my sense that I, I don't know if, if there was a warning message to be sent to Gavin Newsom? Was that at all lost on him on the the backside of the outcome of the recall on the 14th? No. 
I don't think so. Um, um, the warning came about halfway through the campaign. Remember that it's a very, very low bar. It takes, you know, 12% of the people who voted in the last election to certify a recall in the state, which after spending almost $300 million on this little boondoggle, we ought to reconsider those, that, those requirements. But, um, about mid-cycle, there was a concern um, that Democrats would be apathetic. Because remember, when you want to talk about party registration, you have Democrats decline to state and then Republicans uh, in that order. So um, the real concern was whether or not Democrats would show up. But, but you know, and and in the final analysis, I think Gavin was looked at the internal polling and decided he had to do some campaigning. Um, so the only thing I think that's happened um, that impacts Gavin's long-term horizon um, during this period was he's gotten an awful lot grayer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a, a recall election and and the possible derailment of your political career, uh, I think, will tend to do that. Uh, would you concur that he probably, uh, I mean, un- undoubtedly, will run for reelection next year? And then, wouldn't you hazard a guess uh, and, and join me with the speculation that come the the uh, the end of his term as governor of California, that he has his eyes on Washington D.C. Of course. Of course, he has his eyes on Washington D.C. Um, and and there is a little obstacle in his path called Kamala Harris. You know, the the, the Democrats have as much of a problem with uh, hierarchy and technocracy as do the Republicans. So. Everybody is saying, well, Kamala is next up. I, I don't think she's doing such a brilliant job as vice president if she just kind of stands in the background all the time. Um, so, uh, you know, I if I don't think Biden's going to run for a second term, which affects Gavin's planning, okay? If he doesn't run for a second term, then uh, Newsom in the middle of his second term, because I don't think that there's going to be a significant challenge to him next year after this real shellacking um, that uh, that they took, and I think that's a, that's unfortunate on a, on a number of, of levels. But if Biden chooses not to serve a second term, then that complicates Gavin's uh, planning. But my I, I I think you'd have to be uh, dumb, deaf, and blind to think that he does not have designs on the White House. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very clear. Um, and as you aptly point out, what, what may make all of this far more complicated is what happens in three years. I would be hard-pressed to believe that Joe Biden would run for a second term, uh, but I'd also equally be hard-pressed to believe that Harris really can bring it to be able to be competitive with whomever the Republican challenger might be, be it a uh, uh, governor of uh, Florida 
or even Donald Trump himself. And, and that could, could be problematic for the Democrat Party, particularly since it seems as some of the biggest criticism of Harris is coming from inside the Democrat Party. Well, yeah, I, I think your I think your uh, analysis is correct. I I have some questions given some of the recent polling about whether it will be uh, DeSantis um, who is the heir apparent. Um, you know, if if I were I I just finished reading in fact my podcast at Reimagine America Radio, which you can get on Apple. Um, tonight is that'll be recorded tonight and published tomorrow is about the book Peril um, and and having just read that I will tell you that I would like a constitutional amendment that says nobody over 70 in fact nobody over 65 should run for the presidency it's just such a big job these two old men going at it as they did last year um, and and I think it is, um, uh, you know, one, I'm not sure this country is ready yet for a woman. And if it were ready for a woman, it would need to be a woman with a different uh, demeanor. Um, uh, I'm going to speak heresy now, you know, uh, but but I think it would have to be a woman with a different demeanor than... Um, Kamala Harris, she does come off a bit acerbic, and we've been down that road before. Um, I have real questions about looking at the polling in Florida right now. DeSantis's first problem, a problem Gavin apparently does not have, is going to be holding on to his governorship next year. Okay? Um, I think Abbott is more likely to be the survivor in that race. Um in Texas, regardless of the fact that Texas is just not a well-governed state. I mean, the the energy problems alone um, would defeat somebody in California. Um, and part of the problem here is finding strong opponents for these Democratic candidates. Well, and, and not only on that side of the aisle, but, but quite frankly, even the notion of being able to run a strong enough Republican candidate. I mean, I, I was a bit taken aback when John uh, Cox announced that he was going to be putting his hat in the ring, largely because he lost by the widest margin between Democrat and Republican in the race against Gavin Newsom just a scant three years ago, and to think that he was somehow going to take a second run at that job by, you know, traipsing around the state with a Kodiak bear, not even a California grizzly, but a Alaskan Kodiak and a ball of garbage. I, I, you know, if he thought Californians were open for uh, a, a little bit of Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey style shtick, he, he was sorely mistaken. I don't think he barely e- eked out even uh, 8% of the total vote uh, for those that did vote for a replacement candidate. I have to wonder, though, and we can explore this when we come back after the break, whether or not the day and age of California producing any significant Republican leaders is over with. And, and, I, and, I, and I say that with, with a bit of a heavy heart, 
uh, while not a major Richard Nixon fan, he, he was, to be sure, a force to be reckoned with until he ran into some uh, less than wise counsel, we'll put it this way. And, and then, of course, Ronald Reagan. Is the day and an age of California being able to produce those kind of, of um, candidates over with? We're going to continue to explore the, the post-recall election, what it means not only for the future of Gavin Newsom, but most importantly, what it means for the future of the state of California. With us today is Joyce Cordy. Information, by the way, on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. We'll take this brief time out. Back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation, a bit of uh, Monday morning quarterbacking, albeit a couple of weeks uh, after the fact, as we're analyzing the impact, if any, of the recall election and what it means for the future of California politics. With us today is the founder and president of Reimagine America, Joyce Cording. You can check out Joyce's program by going online to reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Joyce, given the challenges that were faced um, in this recall election, and, and I have to admit that I think some of the angst that was there related to Gray Davis 20 years ago was just a, an element that was missing. Yes, people were upset with the seemingly don't do as I do, do as I say attitude of the governor when it came to having dinner at a restaurant there at the French Laundry. Uh, but, I, I, you know, other than irritating people, I, I don't know that that is necessarily a, a uh, an actionable uh, <laughs> behavior by the governor. I mean, it won't be the first time that a politician said one thing and then did something entirely different. But aside from that, there seemed to be a major shift at the point of which it appeared that Larry Elder was going to become the the leader of the pack on the Republican challenger end of things. It's almost as if going into this, Gavin Newsom had a challenge in that he could really only run against himself, meaning he was running against his track record, whereas once it became clear that Larry Elder was going to be the the chosen replacement by California Republicans, suddenly then it it seems as if Gavin shifted from running against himself to running against Donald Trump. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, well, the first, absolutely. I mean, he, you know, he his plurality, his margin of victory initially said, you know, there was no strong challenger in that field. Now, the difference between Gray Davis and um, and uh, Gavin Newsom is twofold. One, in, in Gray Davis's case, uh, he had messed around with uh, auto fees, which, you know, hit everybody in their pocketbook um, and was infuriating and in the um, in Gavin Newsom's case he has um, you know the biggest surplus of any um, governor in history and and frankly we have the lowest per capita rate of COVID in the entire country so he had a couple of things going for him in addition to, you know, the, the graying of his hair and, and the dinner at the French laundry. And, and he had 
the best thing going for him that Gray Davis did not. He was not running against Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, that's true, and, and that was going to be a that was going to be a tough uh, trick to pull off under any set of circumstances because the personality of one is is virtually non-existent compared to somebody like Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, though not a man of huge statue. Uh, seeing him in films is very deceiving. In person, he's much smaller than one would think, uh, but yeah. large in in personality, and certainly was able to resonate with California voters. I don't know that um, his tenure in office is going to go down in history as anything spectacular, but he was able to capture attention, and uh, Gray Davis could not do that. I, I, I'm curious on along the lines of, of um, the notion of California producing future national-level leaders, I, I, at least for this period of time in our lifetime, Joyce, do you think the notion of, uh, of another Richard Nixon, uh, best known for normalizing relations with China, or a Ronald Reagan, do you think those days are over with? Um, I don't see one on the immediate horizon, politically, politically, let me, let's just put it this way, politically in this state at this moment, Gavin Newsom is center. Now he's center left, but he's center. He gives private industry, you know, a nod when he needs, you know, if, with reasonable regularity and acknowledges he made his money in the private sector. Padilla, I think, in his public pronouncements and the way he's handled himself in the Senate, also tries to portray, tries to label himself in his behavior as a centrist, okay? As long as we have Democrats who are are in that mode and Republicans who are supportive of Trump, who has never been popular in this state, you've got a problem. We need two things in the Republican Party, or three things. We need youth. We need people from the private sector. We need people who develop their political uh, credentials in California. Um, and we need um, we need private sector experience and youth. Um, we're not going to win with Larry Elder. We're not going to win with John Cox. We're not going to win with conventional politicians, and we're not going to win with Gavin with um, that was Freudian. With Kevin McCarthy, why did somebody like Meg Whitman, for example, and 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 you come from that 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 rarefied air yourself when it comes to that that layer level of of industry and, and business in a state like California? Why did somebody like Weg, Meg Whitman fail to resonate? Um, without sounding, uh, you know, uh, like I'm feeling sorry for myself, part of it was she was a woman. Um, and part of it was um, that she made some um, tactical mistakes close to the end of the election of the campaign, and she was running at the same time as Carly Fiorina, and Carly is not popular in California. Meg Whitman, a, a younger version of Meg Whitman, with a better campaign staff, could possibly pull it off in California. And I think that would be a great thing. But the Republicans 
have no farm team. They've done nothing to reach out to, you know, Silicon Valley or, you know, major media in Southern California or, or embrace the return of manufacturing to California, et cetera. You gotta play a better game than Newsom on the economy if you want to be competitive in this state and and you've got to walk away from you know this is a a a state with with a very very high proportion of college educated women we're not going back to being you know we're not going backward um we're we need to we need to be reckoned with not as uh oh gee you know certain proportion of as an affirmative action target we need to be reckoned with because we are the leading contributors to california's economy well and, and that's just a reality that we have to we've got to face and and, and sadly we've been very slow i think it uh, or slower than we should be when it comes to facing that reality. And maybe the other challenge here, too, is that while someone like Larry Elder certainly resonates with California Republicans and California conservatives, where any candidate would fall short is the challenge of needing to resonate with a good percentage of Democrats in this state as well in order to win election. Winning the hearts and minds of conservatives and Republicans in California by a Republican can be done. But the problem is when you're facing a two-to-one margin of registered Democrats, um, if you can't attract over a good portion of Democrats and independents uh, to share that sense of enthusiasm, uh, the ability to win the state is going to be tremendously hampered. I don't want to suggest that every Democrat, therefore, in the future has it, quote-unquote, in the bag, uh, but it's a far bigger challenge in trying to effectively compete than, than perhaps uh, the party so far has been uh, recognizing. Joyce Cordy will be discussing these matters more in depth on her uh, podcast. You can check that out at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. We appreciate always, Joyce, your time and uh, your valuable insights. More to come. We're going to get you around the corner. And uh, to do that, let's get a look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee is going to join us coming up a little bit later on in this hour. If, if some have thought that the actions in the state of Texas to, uh, to control abortion on demand are on the quote-unquote extreme side, wait until you see the congressional Democrat response out of Washington, D.C. Um, there is a bill that was uh, passed by the House last Friday that is a eye-opener, jaw-dropper. We'll get details when Brian Johnston joins us coming up a little bit later on. So here's the harsh reality. We have been dealing as a nation, as a state, as the world with COVID for 18, 19 months now. Over that period of time, uh, tragically, because it wasn't taken seriously enough at the beginning, and sadly, good numbers of people continue to not take it seriously enough and now, trying to write it off as like a cold, it's like the flu, you get over it. Well, to the uh, 44 million Americans that have been infected by COVID so far, and tragically, 713,000 deaths just in the U.S. alone. 
highest rate of COVID transmission, highest rate of COVID deaths, not just in the Western world, anywhere in the world here in the United States. Folks, we've not done a job. We've done a dismal job in responding to COVID. And I've got to be honest with you, as I, as I look at some of the confusion out there and people that, um, you know, I, I, you know I, legally, constitutionally, you have a right not to be vaccinated. Uh, do, do you have a right to instead gargle with iodine because you think that's a home remedy that's going to cure you of COVID? It may cure you, kill you. Then you won't have to worry about COVID. Uh, it, it's time that we start to get serious about this. And I said from the very beginning, this feels like God trying to get our attention. And when you combine it with everything else you see going on in the world, what between earthquakes and wars and volcanoes exploding in Spain, um, you know, if, if this isn't good as reason to get on our knees, I don't know what is. Let's talk a bit about it. Shirley Sherman joins us now, founder of Yes, I Will Pray, a 24-7, nonstop, global prayer cafe. Shirley is also a certified marriage and family counselor, best-selling author and composer, and Shirley, always a delight to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's really great to be with you. And uh, honestly, everything you were just saying just made my blood boil just a little bit more. I'll tell you, there's, there, this is such a heaviness on my heart and on Alan's heart as we begin to realize the authority that we have over what's going on. And we have been lax. We have taken it for granted. We have allowed this thing to go way, way beyond what it ever should have. I mean, we have brothers and sisters who have succumbed to this demonic virus, and they're martyrs, to be sure, without a doubt. But it's time to continue being uh, anti all of this and stop this killing spree. So I'm so glad you had me on tonight, because this is just such an incredible thing. I don't think there isn't any one person who has not been affected by this, who've had loved ones die, friends die, people who are sick right now, people who are dying right now, who they don't think they're going to make it. I mean, isn't enough enough? Yeah, and I think that, you know, if there's the the rallying cry, Shirley, uh, similar to, you know, the the, the call to go into battle, uh, you know, you, you would have the, mm. the musicians leading the, the army of Israel into battle and the blowing of the trumpet and, 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 and pulling the troops together to march forward to go into battle. Uh, there have been some attempts, and I, I don't want to by any means diminish those who have taken this seriously from the standpoint of spiritual warfare, but I think that there's been far too little emphasis by the church on the spiritual dynamic of all of this. When you're seeing yes. significant numbers of individuals who are within the body of Christ that are senselessly, needlessly dying, you almost get the feeling that the enemy is 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 unleashing this and I think God is looking at us saying, you know, church, we, we need to be serious here. We have been handed, in a sense, a, an opportunity as the world is grappling with questions related to the here and after, heaven, hell, mortality, all of that. What a unique opportunity for us to not only proclaim the good news, but most importantly, preceding that to be on our face before the Lord and to get serious in prayer. Because if, if this isn't a time and an example, Shirley, for the need of, of significant corporate prayer, then I don't know what, what, is, what, what is a better time. I know. I know. That's exactly, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I'll tell you something. When Yes, I Will Pray 
began 12 years ago. Can you believe Wow, we is it that many years ago? 12, I remember when yes, you came on, yes. 12, yes, 12 years ago. And that's, that was our first announcement, an invitation for people to be a part of something so significant. And it has carried on all these years. And I'm so, so very proud of every single person who has taken this so seriously and prays for the needs of the people. But I'll tell you something, this is, this is another level. And honestly, it's time for us to have another urgent national call to prayer, only this time it's got a different name. This time it's a more authoritative name than Yes, I Will Pray. Yes, I Will Pray is a commitment, but this is called the supernatural destruction of COVID-19. That's what we labeled it, because here's the thing. This is the day that the body of Christ, we who are chosen and called, are going to be positioned in our place of authority as we read in Matthew 10, 1, to cast out demons and unclean spirits and remove them to wander in waterless places and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Jesus told us that we would do all the things he had done and greater. So I ask the question, if not now, then when? We have to do this. We are called. We are chosen. And I'll tell you something. It's time. It's absolutely time. We have to take this seriously. We cannot afford to have one more person go home early. And so we have, we have to get rid of all the satanic clutter and all the things you were talking about with the abortion thing in Texas. I'm in Texas right now, as a matter of fact, and I know what's going on. I don't live here now, but I'm here. And I know what's going on and how that they're trying to do us set up kind of thing with the Supreme Court to get this thing released in Texas so that they are going to be able to go ahead and keep doing abortions. And honestly, this is the time for the body of Christ to realize who we are. This is no this is no time to coddle the devil. This is a time to get mad and to get serious about what God has called us to do and cut out the satanic clutter that he is he is absolutely he's you cannot believe the stuff that Alan and I went through today. And I mean, I won't even go through it. But what I will tell you is this. He is trying to, he is t- attempting to get our focus off of the only thing that matters, and that's Jesus. Everything comes back to Jesus. He is the answer, period. And we have to take that commission that he gave to us and take it seriously and do something about this. Because you know what? There's going to be more people die. There sadly is, and I think the acknowledgement that we are not, you know, uh, this has been reduced into, you know, political debates, conservative versus liberal, Democrat versus Republican, all of this nonsense, completely allowing ourselves to be led down the primrose path as the devil's put the hook on our mouth and, 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 and drug us in that direction. Instead of recognizing, hey, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're not doing a battle against flesh and blood here. This is a battle of principalities and powers in high places. This needs to be pulled down. We need to be on our face before God. This is a time for the church to be serious about fasting and prayer and, and to really beseech God to intervene because he is the only one that holds the power to do so. But the church has to get serious with him, and I believe that God is most importantly, as I read a statistic the other day, that right now we're seeing some of the most significant transmission rates and death rates of COVID in the Bible Belt of the United States. Now, if you don't think that's by accident from the enemy's standpoint, 
then uh, you need to maybe uh, spend a little bit more time in Scripture and better understand of exactly what the enemy is up to. Shirley, before time runs out, tell us exactly this supernatural okay. prayer time for destruction of COVID-19, this literal, this okay. call to action. When is it going to happen, and how do people need okay. to get engaged? Okay, October the 20th, which is a Wednesday, this year. This year, next month, I mean, tomorrow, in two days, we'll be in October. I can't believe that either. But here's what it is. October the 20th, this is what we do. Each one of us represent one voice, and one voice is powerful enough to put a 1,000 demons to flight, two to put 10,000. So what happens when we have thousands of voices speaking the same words at the same exact time? It's exponential. No demon will have a chance to escape. So what we're doing at noon Central Standard Time on October 20th, we are going to all say the exact same words at the exact same time. Do the math in your time zone. I will have all of this available to you if you will just send me um, an email to, and this is actually the, the new video thing that Al and I are doing. It's called the Red Couch Live at gmail.com. The Red Couch Live at gmail.com. But October 20th at noon, Central Standard Time, we are going to see revival. We are going, this is the most important urgent national call to prayer we have ever had. We're going to be stopping the devil in his tracks and saving our families. We're going to see mass healing. People will be strengthened with supernatural strength. Lungs are going to be cleared and healed as the breath of God circulates through their bodies. This is our call. This is our purpose. This is our moment. We don't believe in science. We believe in God. So I'm asking everyone who's listening right now, please pass the word. Tell your pastor. Tell your praying friends. Recruit, recruit, recruit. And pray for this day. I believe we are going to be part of the greatest miracle revival ever seen. And I'm so excited that I get to share this. I hope that we can do it a whole lot more, maybe even come on again before the, the actual date. A- absolutely. That would be an Im- see everybody on the 20th. important reminder to listeners. Again, that's Wednesday, October the 20th. It'll be 10 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. California time, uh, a nationwide call to prayer uh, to, to really just, you know, storm the, the gates of heaven with prayer and see God intervene and pull down this terrible devastating disease. Again, Wednesday, October 20th, 10 a.m. Details and more information, you can send an email to yesiwillpray247 at gmail.com. Just say, hey, I want to get more information. Uh, I want to submit some prayer requests. Just send a quick note to yesiwillpray247 at gmail.com. Our thanks to Shirley Sherman for being with us and for that update. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, I keep threatening to bring Brian Johnston on now. We're going to actually fulfill the promise. Brian, of course, is the host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX, Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee. Brian, I mentioned to listeners earlier on that uh, there's a lot of folks that have considered uh, the um, the recent court case uh, related to the Supreme Court allowing the Texas abortion law to stand. And um, certainly the, the rallying cry by Democrats has been, this is over the top, this is extreme. Well, boy, uh, if the Texas abortion ban is extreme, then the recent bill passed in the House, the so-called Women's Health Protection Act, is extreme on steroids. I mean, it, it, it doesn't seek to try and protect in spite of the name, it, it seeks to completely dismantle any guardrail whatsoever. Tell us what's going on here. 
Well, it is. It's, it's pretty incredible what happened on Friday. The so-called Women's Health Protection Act actually would strike down, should it become law, it would strike down all the protective gains that have been gained. So remember, parental consent is actually very, very popular, even amongst people who consider themselves pro-choice. If their daughter's going to get an abortion, they would like to know about it. And in many states, that is the law. We weren't able to get that passed here, but there's still quite a few Californians that would support that. Well, that's that would be struck. Any waiting periods, any, uh, in other words, this is a very serious decision. That's what they say. And many states have, have laws that say, well, there's a 24-hour waiting period. It's not, you just don't walk in and kill your baby. We're going to give you some cooling off time. And that's the law in many states. Um, the, the recently passed laws regarding Down syndrome, when you intentionally kill a child because of their developmental disability, literally in every state that has passed protective legislation, the federal government would say, no, you cannot protect babies at all, even late-term abortion. We're not going to allow those kind of protections. There would be no protections. So this is the federal government superimposing itself on all of the states, and it's it's really well beyond the Constitution. This is just heavy-handedness, and it's very clear that abortion is the central ideological element of the progressive left. It is the sine qua non. They must be free to kill. And with the cultural battle we're in right now, they see that they are losing ground. It is, it's terribly intimidating to them. So they're going all the way. And incredibly, they don't care about laws that are quite reasonable and that many Democrats support. Not enough. Well, m- moreover, Brian, they also apparently don't care about, about laws that that are not only designed with the spirit of wanting to protect the unborn child, but laws that specifically are designed to protect women. For example, do we really find it to be egregious that there are states that require that a woman who is seeking abortion be provided with information regarding all of her choices, including alternatives to abortion, information on their unborn child, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if they're so pro-choice, you would think that you want to make sure that a woman is equipped with all of the information necessary to make that choice or make that decision. Laws that provide a waiting period so that there's not a rash decision made or a woman is not being forced to do something by a boyfriend that she otherwise would not want to do. What about a law that requires parental consent or at least notification for a minor. This is a medical procedure. Women die on occasions from this procedure. You don't want, as a parent, to know that your daughter is being subjected to this. And then any law that would protect the the decision of consciousness by a physician, a doctor who says, you know, I took a Hippocratic oath, I believe in it, I'm not going to engage in providing abortions, would prohibit medical professionals from opting out of providing abortions. I mean, this is so utterly ridiculous and so over-the-top extreme. It's, as I said in my opening remarks, Brian, this is extremism on steroids. It is draconian. In fact, it passed narrowly. Uh, There was only all Democrats voted for it. There was only one Democrat who did not vote for it. And Republicans voted against it. 
so you're seeing a clear divide, a cultural divide, and they're putting it all out there. This is what they want. And so I, I'm stunned because in many ways the speaker, Mrs. Pelosi, has a very narrow margin, and she's going to push it off the cliff. And what that tells me is they're intimidated. They think this might be their only chance. They have the presidency. They have it in their hands. So if they can push, they want all they want right now. They're terrified that the pro-life message is getting through, that protecting innocent and vulnerable lives, it's occurring to people. We should consider that as a nation. It's at the very heart of our values. We're getting through they're terrified of what's going to happen in this next election. But I have to ask you a question, Brian, and I know our time is getting tight, but I, I, I'm curious from your, your perspective and what you're hearing in the Beltway, wouldn't you look at a law like this, again, this, this measure passing on a vote of 218 to 211 uh, with Republicans and one lone Democrat voting against it, um, uh, this, this House bill that passed on Friday, H.R. 3755, wouldn't you think in the vast manner in which it strikes down, strikes to the heart of states' rights, that the Supreme Court, particularly given its current makeup, would be compelled to come in and say, hey, wait a minute, you just can't <laughs> produce laws like this that completely ignore and wipe out the, the constitutional protection for states' rights, wouldn't you think? Obviously. And that's, it's very clear that the states, it's the states that created the federal government and not the other way around. And for the federal government to say, no, we're going to superimpose, we're going to make you do this, we don't want you protecting any children, we don't want you protecting the rights of medical professionals to to opt out no we're going to force these medical professionals to do this or they're going to get fired i mean that's the stuff that they this is incredibly draconian so yes it's clearly against the constitutional's premise but abortion is not in the constitution and yet they have assumed that it is they say that it is it's not there and that is the bottom line question. They are superimposing a worldview that is not rooted in objective law or reality. So this is going to obviously be tested. Schumer said he's going to take it up. And uh, they're risking a lot because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of pro-life Democrats that when they realize what's going on, they're not going to vote for the member of Congress. So I suggest if, you, if you're told that your member of Congress is a conservative Democrat, see how they voted. Yep, and uh, to be aware of how they vote. And, of course, you can almost bet the delegation coming from California how that's going to go. As I said, the, the, the lone Democrat that voted against it, I want to guarantee you, is not a California vote. More information available at the California Pro-Life Council's website, californiaprolife.org, californiaprolife.org. Brian will dive into this issue and others in a very informative fashion Saturday at 11 a.m., the program is called Life Matters. It's definitely destination. Tune in, so be sure you mark your calendar and join him for Life Matters, Saturday, 11 a.m. here on KFAX. Again, details on the web at californiaprolife.org. Our thanks to Brian Johnston. Let's get a look at traffic now. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.